Hey, this is Robert Fanaro, The Sopranos. You might know me as Eugene, or you might have seen me in The Irishman as Johnny Friendly with Robert De Niro. Anyway, you listen to your Follow Your Dream podcast starring the infamous Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Sheldon Epps, one of the all-time most influential African-American theater and television directors who has been credited with changing the industry through his emphasis on diversity and speaking out on race in the theater. He's directed major productions on and off Broadway in London and at many theaters across the U.S., he was the artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse for two decades, and he currently serves as the senior artistic advisor at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. And he's written a terrific book called My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater. So we'll talk about all of this. And you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that in every episode, I feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow. And in this instance, I've chosen the song The Rescue that I wrote for the album The Queen's Carnival, which was by my band Project Grand Slam. I chose this song because in a real sense, Sheldon is trying to rescue the American theater. How about that? So Sheldon Epps, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. And uh, I'm set up now with that song, The Rescue. I better be good. You go. huh? You're going to rescue the American theater. All right, let's go back a little bit. How did you get interested in the theater? Well, uh, it really was the result of a move that my family made from California, Compton, California, which is part of Los Angeles where I was born and lived until I was eight years old, nine years old. And that was an all black neighborhood. Rarely saw anybody who was not black in the community. It was a rough neighborhood back then, wasn't it? Actually, it wasn't so rough back then. You know, at that point, it was really kind of a nice suburban neighborhood. Compton became a rough neighborhood after we left. I see, because I'm thinking of the, uh, the Williams sisters. They were from Compton, weren't they? Yeah, but that was later. And, it, you know, there was a lot of gang violence, a lot of ugliness. So anyway, I moved from there to um, Teaneck, New Jersey, right outside of New York City. And it was a predominantly white Jewish neighborhood. And I was frequently the only black kid in all of my classes and learning new words and about new foods and new holidays and all of that stuff. I'd never seen a bagel and certainly never eaten one. So there was all of that. Didn't have any bagel stores in Compton, California. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> not that I remember. <laughs> Donut shops were big, but not bagel okay. stores. So, um, you know, my, my world was kind of rocked, as they say. And two things happened. 
uh, as a treat, my mother started taking me to see Broadway shows. So I saw, you know, Hello Dolly with Pearl Bailey and Golden Boy with Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Funny Girl, Hallelujah Baby with Leslie Algams. And I fell in love with going to the theater just as an audience member. And then because I was looking for a community and I wasn't much into sports, I was a small kid, so I wasn't a sports guy. I drifted to the drama club in junior high school and high school and started doing plays and musicals, kind of a, as a hobby, as just something to do. But eventually it kind of, kind of took over my life. And I think in my senior year, it wasn't until my senior year that I really decided, oh, I, I want to do this thing. I want to be an actor. And uh, my parents were supportive of that. And they said, that's fine, but you got to go to college and you have to get a degree. So I went to Carnegie Mellon to, to study drama for four years. See, most times when kids tell their parents that they want to be an actor or a musician or something in the arts, the parents totally freak out because <laughs> they figure that they're going to have to support this kid for the rest of their lives. That's right. But it's nice to hear that your parents took a different attitude here. Yeah, they, they really did. They were very supportive. And as I said, they're... Their only requirement, and it turned out to be a good requirement, was you, you have to go to college and you have to get a you have to get a degree. All right. When you started going to Broadway shows, I look at that as almost like one of the golden ages of Broadway. It was such a wonderful experience, such great shows that took place at that time, the musicals, the dramas, etc. And what I remember, because I grew up in the New York area, so I went to Broadway shows when I was young as well. And the thing that stood out to me as a little kid going to Broadway shows, aside from the shows themselves, was how well-dressed the audiences were. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Everybody used to dress up. I remember my mother getting dressed up to, to take me to see the shows. You never saw people in T-shirts and jeans. Right. You know, often they wore jackets and fancy dresses and all of that. So it was it was more like an event, you know. And then, of course, to me, the people on the stage were beautiful. You know, uh, I saw a lot of these shows with black acting companies and to see these, you know, black actors so immaculately dressed and looking gorgeous and in control of what they do was a real epiphany for me. It's true, because a, a number of the shows that you mentioned started out with white actors in the lead, and then they developed, uh, I guess, companies that, that had a black cast. Yeah. Do you think they were doing that for a specific reason? Were they trying to interest more black people in the theater? Is that the point of it? Yeah, it was really uh, a, a very well-known, slightly crazed producer named David Merrick was the first one to do it. He was, he was you know, hugely successful. And Hello, Dolly had been a big hit with Carol Channing and then Betty Grable and Ginger Rogers. But everybody said it was kind of on its last legs, you know, it, the box office was really waning. And he had this crazy idea that he, he was just going to shut it down for a couple of weeks. And then he was going to bring in this all black company headed by Cab Calloway and Pearl Bailey. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, it was a brilliant idea because those two stars were very, very popular with white audiences, but suddenly it was a way to get black audiences into the theater who had never even heard of Hello Dolly for the three years that it had been running. Um, and it just created this enormous event in the Broadway theater 
which has been reproduced several times since then. But uh, you got to give him credit for just having this great, great marketing idea. Well, it was not only a marketing idea, but as you said, it expanded the audience for Broadway, which was good in so many respects. Yeah. Okay, so you uh, you told your parents you want to be an actor. They didn't freak out. They sent you to college. They told you you had to get a degree. How did you continue your career from there? Uh, well, as I said, I went to Carnegie and uh, I was an acting major. So I, I wanted to be an actor at that time and studied in the acting option for four years. And I actually did graduate and I did get a degree. A lot of people filtered off into other things or got thrown out or whatever, but I actually did get out and got my degree. And then I acted for about seven or eight years after college. And I did okay, you know, I did soap operas, I did uh, occasional commercials, I did off-Broadway stuff and worked at theaters all over the country, but I was a little dissatisfied not having any control uh, as an actor and always have having to audition over and over again. So um, I started a small theater company with four other people that I'd been to college with. And um, it was on 18th Street, tiny little theater company in Chelsea, New York. And um, I started it as an actor. And because I wanted to say, here's a role I wanna play, let's do this play. But I slowly transitioned into directing and really felt comfortable directing, really felt happy, and most of all, started making a living <laughs> as a and, and getting paychecks and working at other theaters. So I was able to stop auditioning and start directing. And honestly, I never, I never remember saying, okay, I'm gonna be a director now. It's just that I started directing and um, realized that I hadn't acted in a long time and I didn't miss it. So clearly I was on the right path for me. All of a sudden you were a director. You know, working in the theater, working in any of the creative arts is difficult. You know, the idea of making a living from all of this is uh, sometimes a very, very tough thing. Did you ever wait on tables? Did you go through that whole thing that, you know, we hear about with, uh, with actors and actresses? Robert, I was so lucky. I, I never had to take what they call a survival job. You know, I was never a waiter. I was never a busboy. I never did temp work in an office. The only thing that I did do to, to survive was um, I was a teacher at American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Uh, that was when we first started the theater. And we, of course, weren't able to pay ourselves anything. So I took a job teaching actors. Uh, so I'd have at least a steady paycheck for a while, but I only did that for about a year or so and then uh, got other jobs. Well, you're very lucky and you must be very talented if you uh, <laughs> avoided that course that everybody else seems to go through. There's a place in New York City, you, you must be familiar with it, that I'm just thinking of called Ellen Stardust Diner. Oh, which yeah. is right in the heart of Broadway, where all the waiters and waitresses are basically out of work Broadway actors and actresses. <laughs> right. And they bring the food and they sing, they dance, <laughs> they jump on the tables. I mean, I guess they're trying to get discovered in that situation. But, you know, look, I, I, 
I feel melancholy in a sense when I go to that place, because on the one hand, I want to see them make a living. On the other hand, I understand how difficult it is to break into the big time. And it's no different than all of the other creative arts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll go to a restaurant in New York City and you'll see, you know, these beautiful, you know, uh, buff bodies and you say, okay, that person has to be a ballet dancer and here they right. are waiting tables or artists or, you know, um, musicians. So tough to, to build a life in the arts. So I was just very, very lucky. Good for you. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album coming out soon called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe, and the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me, the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one starting after the new year. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, so now you're a director and you had that uh, company downtown. Where did you go from there? How did you wind up getting to the Pasadena Theater? Well, it's kind of a long road, but I'll, I'll give you the, sh the shorthand version. While I was at the production company was the name of the small theater that I started with my friends. And I did a show there called Blues in the Night. And through a long path of circumstances, that show wound up on Broadway. Oddly enough, ironically enough, with Leslie Uggams in the cast, who I'd seen when I was a teenager. And while it wasn't a huge success on Broadway, it was nominated for a Tony Award. And as a result of being nominated for a Tony Award, it was produced in London. And it was a big success in London and ran for almost a year on the West End in London. And so that became kind of a calling card for me as a director. 
And I did that show maybe 10, 15 times all over the country and then started getting hired at other places. Uh, eventually, uh, a friend of mine was the artistic director at Pasadena Playhouse, a guy named Paul Lazarus. And he asked me to come out and direct a show at Pasadena Playhouse, which I was happy to do. And that started me on a path of directing there regularly. But I got a job right after that first time at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, uh, where I was associate artistic director. And that's where I really learned to love being on the staff of the theater and being what we call in residence, having an artistic home uh, at one theater. So I was there for four years. And at the end of the four years, uh, my friend had moved on from the artistic director job. And I was offered the job as artistic director at Pasadena Playhouse, which coincided actually with my decision to move to LA to start directing for television. So it was a real uh, example of <coughs> synchronicity that those two things came together. Nice to hear. You know, up, uh, I live in the Berkshires of Massachusetts and there's a theater company here you may have heard of called Barrington Stage Company. Yeah, yeah. And Barrington uh, was also a local stage company and they just built themselves into something that's, you know, basically Broadway quality with a, not, not only a great staff, but like you said, residents, actors and playwrights that, that focus on that place. And they've made it into something very special in this area. Does that take place often around the country on a, on a local basis, on a regional basis? How hard is it to start a company like that? Uh, it's very hard. <laughs> I won't lie. It's, it's hard to start a company like that. And I know um, Julie Boyd, who I think started that theater company and devoted, you know, decades of her life to building it. Yep. Is just stepping down this year. I think this is her last year. She's she's done great things with that theater. She had about 10 years where she was doing the shows in a high school auditorium. Right, right. Which shows you what it was like to try and start a company like that. She actually made her mark, I believe, by directing Yubi on Broadway. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's very difficult. It's very difficult to do that. And it's very difficult to do what I did, which is to sort of reignite a theater and uh, get it going <laughs> again, revitalize it, I guess you might say. Uh, Pasadena Playhouse had been around for years and years and years, but had really gone into kind of an artistic slump. And I felt that here was this beautiful theater, the physical facility was always great. And it's in the, the heart of Los Angeles where uh, there are all these great artists. If, if I can just concentrate on the artistry, on the artistic excellence, there's no reason that this theater can't come alive again. And that's probably was combination of uh, youthful in innocence and hubris. <laughs> but I decided to uh, take on that challenge. And fortunately, with a lot of support from many others, that is what happened. So what, what did you do to revive it? What was the change of pace that you brought? Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, first of all, as you mentioned earlier, uh, was just diversifying the programming. You know, the programming at the time was all geared towards what I would call um, 
middle-class white Americans. <laughs> and you never saw anybody at the theater on stage or off whose face was not white, except for mine <laughs> when I got the job. Uh, so it was all about uh, diversifying the programming, which I believed in artistically and emotionally, but I also knew that that was gonna bring in new audiences, that that was gonna sell more tickets, which it did. But the most important thing was just really focusing on making the work better. And that involves who's directing it, who's acting in it, who's designing it. And the theater had just been sort of going along, congratulating itself for being open and for surviving, but not really focusing on was the work excellent, you know? So there is no reason in this great facility, in this city, that the work can't be really great. And I worked at great theater, so I had a standard of what greatness could be. So I just went about that. And, and you know, that's largely about hiring the right people, you know, and it's largely about hiring people who have a passion and who are not just doing it for the paycheck, but because they want it to be great. But you also have to be choosing the right productions, the right stars, etc. Was there a breakthrough event for you that just put you back on the map again? Um, well, there were a couple. The, the, the very first one was doing uh, a play by Tom Stoppard, which is a brilliant, he's a brilliant writer and that's my favorite of his plays. And that kind of established a level of excellence in the writing that the theater had not seen for a long time. It's a very difficult play, so it was ambitious to do that play. And it was also important because it's a play that had appeal to, to younger audiences, you know, because in addition to the audience being all white, they were all over 60. So I said, you know, we gotta get some younger people in here. And that's a play about young relationships. So that was a breakthrough. A real breakthrough was a production of Fences that I did. Um, great play by August Wilson, and that production starred Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett. So, you know, as you can imagine, that got a huge amount of national attention and a huge amount of focus. Were they stars at that time, or were they coming up through the oh, No, no, they were, they were both big movie stars by then, and just happened to be of just, you know, twist of fate. They just happened to be available at the same time and loved this play and wanted to do it. Stop, I wanna stop you right there for a second, because tell people, you got the idea to put this play on. Did you target them as the stars of the play? How did they come into the production? <laughs> I'll, I'll be totally honest, Robert, and, and tell you that I pulled the old casting trick, which is I went to Angela Bassett, who I knew and said, uh, well, I'm going to talk to Lawrence. I've talked to Lawrence Fishburne, and he'll do it if you do it. And then I went to Lawrence Fishburne. I managed to get to him, and I said, well, I talked to Angela Bassett, and she said, she'll do it if you do you it. Do it. <laughs> so I, I pulled the old fast one, I, I confess. And, and then fortunately, they both fell for it, and they both said, oh, oh, well, if Lawrence wants to do it, I'll do it. If Angela wants to do it, I'll do it. All right, we, we've outed you, but I want to congratulate you. That's the right way to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually in the book. So I've already outed myself about that, but 
Yeah. All right. You know, let's talk about that book for a moment, because you've had very uh, definite views on race in the theater and expanding the diversity of theater. So tell us, you know, about the book. Why'd you write it? And what's your focus on those issues? Well, the book was really uh, to focus on those issues and to focus on what what I was able to accomplish at Pasadena Playhouse, you know, transitioning it from this really all white theater to a theater that really uh, reflected the diversity of Los Angeles and of the country, you know, which I thought was important. But it's also a book about, since we're on your program about following your dreams, um, it's a book about following my dreams and about not being put in what I would call the black box, where I was told by American society, what I should or should not be dreaming. You know, I wanted to define my own dreams and my own ambitions and my own goals and all of that. And fortunately, again, had a family who was supportive and a community that was supportive. So it's a book about um, overcoming the restrictions that I should have paid attention to or was told to pay attention to as a person of color in this country and in the theater field and and my bucking that and saying no i i want to do the things that i want to do uh from the material i choose to direct to leading a theater company you know leading a theater company that was previously thought of as a white theater and proving that i can do that successfully and that there is no reason to ever question a person of color's ability to run an arts institution. What we've talked about so far was kind of your ascendancy in the career, but I'm assuming that somewhere along the line, you, you hit walls that were racist walls. Talk a little bit about that. And not only yourself, but what do other black and uh, other you know diverse artists face in the theater? Well, as, as I just mentioned, and, and this is something that certainly early in my career I had to deal with, uh, artists of color and women are often put into a very limiting box, you know, told, okay, you're black, here's the plays you can do. Don't try to do all of these other plays. You're a woman, here's the plays you can do, mainly written by women. Don't try to do Tennessee Williams or Eugene O'Neill, stick with plays by women. So you face that and you have to very proactively say, look, I'm an artist. <laughs> you don't tell white men to limit themselves to a certain sector of plays. White men get to direct whatever they want to direct. You know, I want that same freedom and that same ability. And I don't want to be told that I cannot be or shouldn't be the leader of an institution. And believe me, at the time that I started leading Pasadena Playhouse, that was very, very rare. There were three of us at the time I started, those two, the other two went on to do other things. So for a while, I was the only black artistic director of a major theater in the country. So fortunately that has changed, but at the time, that was sort of revolutionary. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just thinking to myself, you're nominated to be the artistic director. There's no other black artistic directors at that time. Probably the board of the Pasadena was all white. Yes. What was that like? 
did you have issues getting in there or did they welcome you as the way that they should have? Uh, I always say it was a third, a third, and a third. <laughs> there was about a third of the board, and I would say a third of the constituency of the theater as a whole, donors, um, audience members, subscribers. There's about a third that really said, oh, this is interesting. This is going to be great. There was a third that had kind of a wait and see attitude. Well, I don't know, this is a little odd, but let's wait and see what the kid is going to do. And then there was a third that was not having it, you know, that was, you know, not on board, not on this train <laughs> to glory, <laughs> you know, who said, how did this happen? And how long do we have to put up with it, you know, before we can get rid of this guy and get our theater back? And, you know, as I stuck around and got more uh, success and more support, I, I started to saying to that third, if, if you're not gonna get on board this train, then you're just gonna have to leave or you're going to have to fire me. <laughs> Those are really your two choices because nothing else is going to change. I'm sorry, but while you were telling the story, I had this image in my mind of the movie Blazing Saddles by Mel Brooks, <laughs> where the town hired a black sheriff for the first right. time. Okay, And the town was all white and the, the look of horror on their faces when he was introduced as the sheriff it was a very funny scene, but from your point of view, it was a poignant scene probably at the same time. It, it was, and I have my own version of that. I know exactly the moment you're talking about. You know, there was uh, a very liberal newspaper uh, in Los Angeles at that time, and they wrote an article about how this was never going to work, how this black guy was, was never going to be able to stay at this theater. And the article was accompanied by a drawing I kid you not, of me being boiled in a pot of oil, hot oil, with rich Pasadenans dancing around the cauldron. Oh, my God. And I kind of laughed at it and thought it was clever and funny and all that. But when I showed it to my mother, she burst into tears. <laughs> I can imagine. And I said, oh, okay, well, maybe I better take this a little more seriously, but... That was, you know, that was my Blazing Saddles moment, turning, seeing this uh, illustration in the newspaper. All right. Well, look, you have risen above all of that. You've had some heck of a career. I want to uh, uh, congratulate you on everything. We have been speaking here with Sheldon Epps, who has had a marvelous career in the theater. We didn't even get to your career in television, but I know that you've done wonderful things in television as well. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking about your background and what's happening in the theater. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And now we're going to listen again to the song that started off this episode. This is my song called The Rescue. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.